Research is such an important part of what graduate students do, yet they can often feel that their creativity is stifled in choosing what to study. There's also the challenge in finding research that will be engaging to others. On today's episode, Dr. Doug Lay joins us to talk about helping students come up with interesting research. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. This is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to increase our personal productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Today I'm welcoming a former professor of mine from my doctoral program. His name is Dr. Doug Lay. He has a PhD from Florida State University and also a master's there as well and a bachelor's from Florida State University. He earned his PhD in instructional systems, where he served as a director of technical projects with various local, state, and federal agencies. His current research publication and lecture interests concern cause analysis, organizational trust, leadership visions, and dispute resolution. He has a number of publications, which I'd encourage you to take a look at if you go to teachinginhighered.com slash 84. There'll be all the show notes from today's episode, including a link to his bio with his publications. And I'm really excited to talk to him about a special two-year assignment he had with the National Science Foundation, because it really resonates a lot with the topics we'll be discussing today. And I also just think it was a neat project to work on with them. Doug, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Hi, great to talk with you, Bonnie. Nice to talk with you, too. I mentioned that you are a former professor of mine, which is always fun to have someone I feel so comfortable talking to on the show. So thank you for that. And I think something really that was interesting to me, in fact, happened while we were in school, was this special assignment you did with the National Science Foundation. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so um, the... National Science Foundation does what they call intergovernmental personnel assignments. It's a big mouthful, so they, they abbreviate it to the IPA program. And essentially what it allows is for the foundation to be able to bring in expertise from around the world, really, but mostly focused on the United States, and for two years on sort of a rotator basis. And while serving at the National Science Foundation, they work in their particular scientific discipline. And the idea is that it brings in um, sort of fresh blood or fresh approaches and ideas to uh, how science can be done within the country. And what was maybe either a big surprise or a big takeaway from that experience from you when you came back to your quote unquote regular job? Well, I think one of the best parts about it was, of course, being in a, it's structured much like a university. So it's structured into different uh, divisions, like a, like a school would have different departments. And being able to have access to you know, that kind of real brilliance uh, across a, a variety of dis- disciplines that I might not have had much previous exposure to was really fantastic. And, and the surprising part is probably what shouldn't be surprising at all, but you know, despite the, the renown that 
exist within those expertises. Everybody tends to be pretty laid back and, you know, they're willing to help and their intent is to, uh, to advance science by helping researchers get access to government funds and be able to, uh, to present competitive research uh, within the world. That is such a fun discovery to have. I feel like I have that about a number of things in my life where I think, gosh, I should have known this in advance that they would be like this, but I allowed myself to get intimidated or whatever it is by, by the prestige of it all. Right. People end up being really a, a lot more approachable than I, I think we sometimes fear they might, they might be. Well, on the show before, we've talked about undergraduate research, but this is the first time we're talking about more the graduate level of research, although we both know there's a lot of parallels between the two. So I would encourage people not to press stop if you only work with undergraduates. <laughs> but with your experience, I wonder if you would share a bit, what do you see as being some of the challenges that hold the graduate students back from being able to come up with these really interesting research questions to begin their research? I think that it kind of it depends uh, across different institutions. It's not uncommon for institutions to uh, essentially have their graduate students working on the research agendas of the faculty supervisors, particularly within the natural sciences. But in the social sciences, or at least at Pepperdine, in our approach to the education division and the psychology division, students essentially pick their own dissertation topics, and and sometimes they come in knowing what they what they wish to pursue for for research, but oftentimes most don't and benefit or you know seek out coaching on you know what's a good topic for me, what is something that, that I should pursue and. Often situated within their the organizations within which they work or that they aspire to work, but sometimes students end up pursuing avenues of potential research that m- might be oh unusual or perhaps even controversial, but doesn't really have much of a grounding in the literature in the sense that sometimes the question's been asked and answered, and sometimes the consensus seems to be that it might not be a not, might not be an important question to, to ask in the first place. I remember that one of our, our the faculty members that we worked with was famous for saying, we need to get you famous by Friday, you know, get it done, get it, <laughs> get that, get that dissertation done so that you can move on to quote the rest of your life and to, right. to help sort of this paralysis of choosing a topic but I would say also that that what I'm hearing from you from our conversation prior and then now is that this finding something that we have an interest in, finding something we have a passion in, is also important to help propel us through those really difficult times. Can you talk about an example that you remember from working with a student when they, they first, you started to see those flashes of just passion and interest where they really had landed on something that was both interesting to them, but also, as you say, to people that were going to potentially review their research? Yeah, I think it's a bit, it's a bit of an unusual example, perhaps. So I teach within uh, the Graduate School of Education and Psychology, and most of the students that I work with are interested in leadership and its applications within either organization, business organizations or nonprofits or healthcare, and also students within K-12 education and, and its administration. 
so some years back I had a, a student who brilliant student and it was a it was a pleasure to be able to be uh, invited to serve as his dissertation chair uh, so I jumped at the chance and his interest was in Venice Beach, Venice Beach is a community here in Southern California and it's populated by along its canals by cottages little uh, craftsman style cottages from I believe the 1920s and he was interested in doing sort of an oral history of how those cottages came to be and how they exist within the community and what kind of care has been taken of them and I thought that's interesting and, and of course uh, talking about interesting research of course you know the eyes in the beholder but to me that's <laughs> pretty cool yeah but I said how does that connect to your degree in organizational leadership and he says, oh, yeah. So he ended up choosing a, a completely different topic. He, he became interested in knowledge management and uh, what, what it took to uh, implement ways of uh, increasing knowledge management within organizations. So in a totally different direction and got there in a way that was perhaps indicative of his brilliance, that he could switch gears that, that, that effort level, effortlessly. That's an unusual case within which something like that happens. Yeah, I started in a completely different area and wound up in knowledge management. I thought you were going to somehow yeah. connect it back to those cottages, but alas, I've been watching too alas. much TV, you can tell. <laughs> yes, well, perhaps, as you said, now that he's got his dissertation done, now maybe he's able to dedicate himself to those interests more fully. Yeah, exactly. And And where do you see typically the challenges come in for people as they work on... on I, you know, and not in every discipline, but in many disciplines, there's a literature review. So trying to understand what the body of research is, how many starts and stops do you typically see along the way? And, and how do you eventually see them smooth out? I think one of the things that comes as a surprise to at least doctoral students, I would presume that it happens at the master's level, but some of the differences perhaps between doctoral work and master's work has to do with the amount of original data collection that's done within typical dissertations. And I, I get that that's not always a criteria depending on one's master's program. But I think that the surprise to students comes in the starts and stops, not just in the conceptualization, but also the, the draft and review and feedback process. It, it, let me put it this way. It's, it's rare for students to complete a draft of their proposal, get feedback, and then go to their preliminary oral examinations, and then just essentially do another draft before their final oral presentation. I've worked with students who are very dedicated and hardworking and productive, and it might take them 10 or 12 drafts before they get to their, their final orals. So I, I try to work with my students to help set up the expectation that you know, when, a, when a dissertation chair is doing a good job at what they're doing, they're getting a lot of feedback and that may involve you know, se several iterations of, uh, of drafting uh, on the student's part. So that's a bit of a, that's a bit of reality that I think comes as a surprise to some students. I found that so helpful along the way of earning my dissertation was whenever people involved in the process would explain the process to me in advance, because it's, it can be really difficult to navigate something like this if you know sort of what those starts and stops may look like or what that that process of feedback may look like. I don't know if I ever shared this with you, but one of mm -hmm. our, our stats professors 
the same famous by Friday guy, by the way, (laughs) Uh had always said to us, if you're going to have a quantitative dissertation, then you had better know every single number on every single chart on every single page in that dissertation. And so I was regularly practicing questions and answers about if someone asked me what this number means, I better know every backwards and forwards table in there. (laughs) And Uh you were among my committee members on my, (laughs) Uh on my dissertation. And it was very good that I knew every single number. And so you'd ask, what about this? What about that? And what about this? And I could, I could address your, your questions. And in fact, in one point in time had to be very cautious. I remember to say, actually, that's not what that table is. That table's on another page, but that table is saying this. And afterward, my mom thought you were a little mean. And I had to explain to <laughs> that, no, he's doing well, his job. Well, he's a good. very nice man. He's just doing his job. But that part of it, I think, is the culture that you have built so well there at your institution of, I never felt like I wasn't supported, but I also never felt like I wasn't really earning a rigorous degree. And I could be proud of that I had worked really hard and been challenged along the way. <laughs> so, but, but that came from your kindness along the way. But you also are a person who wants us to really reach our potential and beyond, you know, beyond what we thought we were capable of. So that was really a fun story. But yes, I had to, I had to tell her, no, he's, he's actually a really nice man. <laughs> uh, that's, that's very sweet. I, I say good in the sense that uh, I think as, you, as your experience has been and, and I suspect that it's this way at most institutions. So we, so we call them defenses. You know, they're not interrogations. They're not, mm-hmm. you know, getting getting lined up to be battered with questions to prove your worth before you know a, a student is allowed into the club. And th- that very much wasn't my experience when when I was at Florida State. I, I definitely felt supported, but I did feel pressed to be accountable and i don't mean to say that a student of course shouldn't be accountable but accountable for my decisions and demonstrating my knowledge sort of proving my worth in the defenses and i think the way that a lot of scholars nowadays go about supporting students it's by looking at the preliminary oral and even the final oral like like just a meeting of minds that you know this is the first time that say four in, in our case it's the first time that these four minds are getting together for the same purpose at the same time during preliminary oral exams. So let's think through how we can make something great even better. And let's, yeah. let's get our minds together to do, do a really great project. And part of that is being so transparent about your intent. Because like you said about the there's going to be, you know, sometimes up to 12, 15. We don't know how many of these revisions are going to come along the way. But my intent is that you're going to have a fabulous final product. And so that, that, that they understand where it's coming from, I think, really mm-hmm. helps people navigate the process a little bit better. Talk to us a little bit about some of the resources that you use in helping students come up with more interesting research. And I think you may have a little bit about some of the fields and disciplines in science, too. The first thing that it that it seems to be that what makes for uninteresting research certainly <laughs> yeah. doable. It, like it's not a not a criteria uh, on any rubric that you know a study has to be interesting in the sense that it's engaging, but it certainly helps you know keep mem- as, uh, momentum as the author, as the student writer and researcher. It, it certainly pleases the committee too when when they are able to say, "Huh, 
I hadn't thought of that, or that's something that's that's unusual. You know, I, I think that if a if a student approaches a topic by saying that everything that seems to be the case really isn't the case at all, then you know the committee will, or chair, I guess, in the first place, just you know, pretty much say that's absurd. You've you've got to really connect this in a meaningful way to the field. You all you also don't want to hear your chair say, you know, so what or who cares if that's irrelevant because it's not uh, the topic isn't really connected to to what's already known. And obviousness, well, it's certainly something to, to build upon from, from the literature. I, I think that students who can avoid falling into the position of, you know, just reaffirming what's already known, students that can avoid doing that are able to position themselves to do, to do research that, you know, sticks with them as as a passion longer than uh, those who don't. When when they do find their, their research topic, very often it seems magical and uh, invigorating. And what can happen through you know any any research project is that by the process of collecting information and data and analyzing that, a lot of that magic necessarily disappears. Something that seems unknown becomes known. And while that process can be fascinating, very often at the end of the end of the process, students can be left feeling a little ho hum about what they you know have just dedicated perhaps years of their life in studying. So uh, you were sharing a bit about some of the news that's come up in science that might represent some interesting research questions. Yeah, so it, to me, the idea of of a research topic is closely related to that of what makes for an interesting problem. Um, of course, you know most research papers present the, the problem that they seek to address, and of course, that problem doesn't have to be you know things gone wrong. It can simply be a, a an opportunity for for research. So, I'd like to think about uh, approaching a problem as sort of a three part argument with. The first point that a student might make in their topic is what's what's known to be so about the, the topic of interest to them. But then to follow that up with a competing truth about the topic that creates uh, attention that requires the upshot of, of research existing. And sometimes, I guess, it's, it's not necessarily known whether <laughs> the results will be interesting, but by setting up a, a topic that might be compelling it can become interesting to the student, to the, to the committee, because it can expose how an accepted view of the world is just an interpretation of it and offer an alternative to that view of the world. So as an example, this is more from um, the, the findings end rather than the planning uh, a study end. But in the field of social psychology, social cognition is a term that's used to to study human perception, judgment, and memory. And in the 80s, the, the general take on social cognition was that those kind of mental processes could either only be controlled through an automatic process, much like our respiratory system, or that they were uh, volitional, that they were things that, that people chose in terms of how they, they see and judge and remember the world. But just 10 years after that, the consensus seemed to be pretty clear that people's social cognitions were really combinations of, of each of those, of both controlled and uncontrolled mental processes. 
I'll share with you a, I think I can share with you a link, hopefully at least people behind you know, university paywalls for access to academic papers can get to it. But Murray Davis, a uh, sociologist who passed away in 2007, wrote some really helpful guidelines for what makes interesting research. The, the one that, that comes to mind is from uh, 1971. And what he's seeking to do is you know, create sort of a taxonomy of interestingness. This, this example regarding social cognition, you might call interesting by organization, the idea, or, or disorganization. So there are sort of these binary options. And the interestingness of organization or disorganization involves pointing out things that uh, we've thought to be similar are really dissimilar. Or just the inverse, um, that things that seem to be dissimilar are similar. And so by creating that kind of integration within a field or disintegration within a field, um, topics can be uh, more compelling. Mm -hmm. And tell me more about how you first found out about Murray Davis and these, these, this taxonomy that he's got. At the National Science Foundation, I had a, a colleague who was interested in the sort of approach of what makes for research that's compelling. And he shared with me a more recent article that's come out that's sort of a tongue-in-cheek piece on uh, how to write consistently boring literature, I think is what it was. <laughs> and uh, it referenced uh, Murray's work, and I thought, huh, wonder what wonder what that's about. So uh, I accessed it through our library databases and thought, ah, this is great. I might be able to use this in my own my own teaching within my, in fact, on Monday, I, I began a, a research methods class with uh, my doctoral students. And we're looking forward, I'm looking forward at least to talking about his, his paper and what it is that does make research interesting. Yeah. And as you've talked about it, it, it helps on so many levels. It helps fuel us, you know, or keep our passion going and then helps other people want to to read and I think probably does a, a good job of organizing our thoughts around the research too, which may, may not be necessarily clear up front. Are there any of the other parts of the taxonomy that you really want to point out before we go on to the recommendation segment? Or that and it's a, it's a list, by the way. We'll have a link to the articles that Doug is referring to at teachinginhigheredcom/slash84, and you can so you can check out further uh, some of the ideas that that Doug has had and, and that Murray has also, Murray Davis had around making research interesting. But do you, any others that you want to bring up before we go to recommendations? Yeah, I guess I'll, I'll share one with you. It's um, around the idea of a topic being interesting because of it being generalizable or localized. A, a researcher might make an argument that, some, that a topic's worth pursuing because what seems like a global truth is really more of a local one and, or, or vice versa, that uh, what's thought to be experienced locally is more global. As an example, the, the Pew Research Center in collaboration uh, with the AAAS, which is loosely affiliated with the National Science Foundation, recently did a study on the public's view of science versus that of scientists, how science, scientists uh, perceive, I think it was 13 different topics uh, regarding the field. And there were a few, like two maybe, in which the two pretty much seemed to be eye to eye. It, the space program, for instance, I think two-thirds of each agreed that it was a worthwhile invest, investment for the country. 
But in just about everything else, there was a pretty big gap between the perceived importance of uh, various science topics um, and the consensus agreement regarding them. So it it turned out that the biggest gap, it was a 51% uh, gap, was between the public's perception versus scientists' perceptions of whether eating genetically modified food is safe. Wow. And nine in 10 scientists believed it to be, and only 37% of the public did. So I, th- I think this could be an instance of how um, things can be compelling to a, a gen- more general audience. Uh, and, and I point this out, too, because as you kind of suggested with, uh, with your dissertation, it's, even though it's something that exists only within your you know, three or four-person dissertation committee while it's being created, it lives you know, well beyond that that conference room or classroom in which the consensus take place, they exist out in the world, and to to be able to connect with readers that are five years or five thousand miles away from now, being able to 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 grab their interest through pointing out some counterintuitive or unexpected features of the world can be really helpful. Well, this is the point in the show where we each give a recommendation, and my recommendation is related to what you just said, and and that is that I found a really helpful resource. It's a book called Doing a Literature Review, and I'll be linking to that in the show notes again, which will be at teachinginhighered.com slash 84. It's by Chris Hart, and it was just a wonderful resource for me. I think perhaps I could have I shouldn't say perhaps I could have done a literature review without this book, but it really helped me organize things well. And I felt that was one of the stronger pieces that kind of helped me get through the entire process. And it would be something I would definitely use with students of mine and would suggest that people do if literature reviews are a part of whatever dissertations or research you may be conducting or supporting students in conducting. It's a wonderful resource. I would check out doing a literature review. And Doug, I know you have a couple recommendations too. Yeah, be sure to check out the text. It's, um, I th- you're right, that is, I think, one of the, the challenges that students can face is uh, how do I organize my literature and uh, how do I summarize it in a way that says something more than just a, a book report or, you know, sort of a summarization, but how do I synthesize things into saying something meaningful and new. To me, I think one of the important things in doing that is being able to identify literature that is important within the field. Google Scholar certainly makes that quite a bit more accessible, I think, to people. But getting access to the most highly cited research and the research that may have been relatively new but still has a greater impact in the field is also important. So the best way that I found to be able to do that is through uh, software called Publisher Parish. It's put out on harzing.com. I'm sure you can uh, host a link. Ann Will is a a professor of management at at Middlesex, and she developed the software to be able to do rather robust searches of either Google Scholar or I think Bing or whatever Microsoft's uh, commonality with Google Scholar is. And it does a really great job of being able to do massive searches of the academic literature based on what's called impact scores, or essentially uh, given the importance of the journal and the number of citations it's got, what looks to be like the most critical research to really focus on, or the most popular, most critical literature to focus on within one's research topic. 
And it looks like she she talks about, I don't know if it's her that wrote this particular page I'm looking at, but it talks about the good citation metrics being a potential for having had a significant impact on the field, but the opposite of that is not necessarily true. So they caution you, I think is nice how not to use their software and not to limit yourself too much. I thought that was really good. And I know you have one more thing to recommend before we close. And this is probably more uh, salient for those in the social sciences, but the Eric thesaurus, um, Eric is a, now it's a governmental uh, clearinghouse of educational research information. And the thesaurus can be really useful for being able to find out ways in which others within the academic field talk about concepts that you might be interested in. So, for example, our students might be interested in something like self-efficacy. And while that's certainly a real thing, uh, they might discover using a thesaurus that it's referred to differently in different academic traditions, like perhaps self-actualization or self-concept. And it's really helpful to be able to identify that so your one's literature searches can be done more efficiently. When I first went up there to test it out, because I knew you'd be recommending it today, I was unable to find any <laughs> descriptors to look at. So I suggest if it's your first time visiting, click on the little browse thesaurus link and you'll be like a kid in a candy store and having all kinds yeah. of fun looking at so many of the topics that are up there. That's a great suggestion. Yeah. Good point. Thank you so much for being a guest today on Teaching in Higher Ed. My pleasure. Thanks, Bonnie. Thanks once again to Dr. Doug Lay for being a guest on today's show and to all of you for listening. If you have yet to subscribe to the weekly emails that I send out, what you'll receive are all of the show notes automatically in your inbox so you don't have to remember to go check out all the recommendations, including these show notes at teachinginhighered.com slash 84 have links to all of the examples of different kinds of interesting research. And Doug has gone through and put links to examples of those with some really, really great studies. I hope that you'll check those out. It's one of those bonus show notes episodes worth checking out and all the books that we referred to in the software, et cetera. So check those out at teachinginhighered.com slash 84. But if you are worried about not remembering, you'll get one email per week and that'll come with all the show notes along with an article on teaching or productivity written by me. Thanks once again for listening. And I do want to say thanks to all of you who have been writing such kind reviews. Whatever service it is that you use to listen to the show, whether that's iTunes or Stitcher, there's an opportunity for you to recommend the show and help other people discover it. And I just wanted to say thanks to everyone who's been writing them. You're so gracious to say such kind things about the show and help other people find out about it through those services. You can find out more at teachinginhighered.com slash iTunes or slash Stitcher if you want to see a quick way of making those ratings or reviews. Thanks once again for listening. I just realized I forgot to tell you, if you want to subscribe to that weekly email, that's at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. Thanks once again for listening and we'll see you next time.